as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi. Welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Kristen Potts, Child and Youth Mental Health Services Speech Pathologist from Eastern Health in Melbourne. Today's episode is all about selective mutism. Selective mutism is a condition where children are able to talk comfortably in some situations, such as at home or around familiar relatives, but are not able to use their voice in other social situations where there is an expectation for speaking, such as at school, or with less familiar people. So, what is the role of a speech pathologist in the assessment and intervention with children diagnosed with selective mutism? How can we use our skills and knowledge on best practice in regards to communication to assist these children to be effective and functional communicators across contexts and settings? Dr. Elizabeth Woodcock is the Director and Clinical Psychologist at the Selective Mutism Clinic in Sydney. She is an Australian guru in the field of selective mutism, with over 15 years working with this population. The clinic has seen over 800 children with selective mutism who have ranged in ages from two years to adulthood. Elizabeth provides consultations to school teachers as part of her treatment for children with selective mutism, provides professional supervision to clinicians, and also runs an educational series of webinars each year about selective mutism for psychologists, speech pathologists, teachers, and parents. Elizabeth has graciously agreed to share some of her time today to help demystify the world of these complex children. Thank you, Elizabeth, for your time and for joining us on the podcast today. Welcome. Thanks, Kristen. It's a pleasure to chat with you. I love the fact that psychologists and speech pathologists both play a role in treating selective mutism, so I'm pretty excited to talk to you about what I know about selective mutism today. Oh, it is really exciting. And I, I'm also excited by the, the team approach. It's, um, it's the way to go, I think. Um, so to start, it would be great to chat about the epidemiology of selective mutism. Elizabeth, what is the prevalence of selective mutism in our community? And are there any common traits in people presenting with selective mutism? Yeah, so it's a disorder that's a lot more common the younger the child is. So it tends to present in preschool. And uh, there's not a lot of research of the prevalence, but uh, the studies are suggesting about one in 140 children in the first three years of school. That's from the first year of school, not preschool. So I'd say it's even more common in preschoolers than that. And then when you look at the older age group, so for example, seven to 15 years, one in 555 children. So you can see how it becomes a lot rarer as time goes on. And I think that's because kids end up finding treatment and um, it, it ends up resolving. And once resolved, unlike a lot of other anxiety disorders, it doesn't tend to relapse. Um, and in terms of your other question of uh, common traits, 
uh, these kids tend to have a very strong genetic history so you see of anxiety so you see more anxiety in uh, their family members or extended family members not just selective mutism but it could be social anxiety or other anxiety disorders then they're born with an anxious temperament and then there's a number of things the research shows, like uh, they tend to have been socialised less as they're growing up, and there's more changes of house and school. So it's almost like a bit of a setback. So they kind of might make a little bit of progress with socialising at preschool or school, and then they have a change, which then just sets them back and makes it harder. And then the other thing we see is there's a much higher incidence of uh, kids from bilingual families. And I think rather than the child being bilingual, there's an even higher incidence of kids who are not bilingual themselves, but their parents are bilingual. So they're exposed to parents with accents or parents with English um, is not their first language, so they might struggle with the language. And uh, tacked onto that is there's uh, quite a high incidence that still have some sort of communication disorder, uh, like problems with expressive or receptive language articulation disorders, stuttering, and so on. So my take on that is that there's a whole lot of factors that have made these anxious kids more self-conscious about language and communication, which then plays a role in the selective mutism. And how intractable is selective mutism? So it is, I see it as one of the most complex anxiety disorders. So it is quite severe, uh, therefore quite intractable. So it generally, in my opinion, takes about one to two years to fully resolve. Uh, But by fully resolve, I actually mean talking in front of the class, being able to give speeches, you know, in the way that most kids can. Uh, So one to two years is a long time to treat an anxiety disorder. Uh, However, the great thing is, as I just said, it doesn't tend to relapse. Uh, So once treated, you know, they're on their way. And it really does need to be fully treated so they don't still have social anxiety as well. So do you think that there are any factors that make treatment and intervention more likely to work? Definitely. So as I said, uh, treatment is effective. So we've got some um, good knowledge of strategies that I'm sure we'll talk about later that are very effective in treating it. But I found that you do need a very motivated um, and interested classroom teacher someone who's fairly psychologically minded um, or is at least willing to really kind of grasp the the strategies underlying the child's treatment. And uh, parents as well, we need them to be uh, really willing to be uh, learning new strategies, taking their child out into lots of social situations and practising communication. So it's that willingness and motivation of everyone coming together that makes treatment more effective. And it really sounds like that team approach is is what is needed, which is what we talked about before, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Schools, uh, teachers in particular, play a really important role in the treatment for these kids because that's where the selective mutism is presenting mostly. So if we're thinking about um, assessment, what do you consider in the initial assessment of a child with possible selective mutism? Yeah, I should say up front that... Uh, the way I conduct an initial assessment is always with the parents alone without the child. That's not how I usually see kids with other presentations. Uh, but for selective mutism, I find that to hear their parents talk for a whole hour about the situations where they don't talk is pretty overwhelming. And yeah. Uh, quite a confronting experience when they're first meeting me and I'm the person who's supposed to be doing treatment with them. So my assessment is with the parents alone. Uh, It's obviously a full clinical and developmental assessment. Uh, In addition to that, I'd be getting information about the family history of anxiety and mental health 
and looking for other comorbid conditions that the child has. So with these kids, we know that there's a very high incidence of other conditions like anxiety disorders, the communication disorders I've mentioned, uh, but even things like toileting issues, uh, depression if they're older, late primary school and high school, social problems, and even looking for red flags for autism, which seems to have quite a high comorbidity with selective mutism as well. Mm, that's really interesting. And what do you think, um, in, in terms of the assessment, the role of a speech therapist might be in, in that assessment? Yeah, um, if I was seeing a child in the clinic, my thoughts are that I'll try and have a go at, well, not have a go, I will treat the selective mutism first, even if yep. I detect that there's communication issues, and then I'll refer to a speech pathologist later down the track. Okay. Now, that obviously might not happen if the child starts with a speech pathologist. Uh, yes. You might start treating the selective mutism and then you might assess that, okay, there's a lot of other stuff going on in this family. They also need to be seeing a psychologist. Yeah. Um, so I do think if there's uh, communication uh, disorders, then a speech pathologist does need to be involved. But there's always that question of, when's the right time to refer to a speech pathologist? And if the child is in the very early stages uh, of selective mutism or never received treatment before, I think they need that help with lowering their anxiety, starting to make some progress with talking to people. So yeah. then when they end up in the speech therapist's office, they're much more likely to be able to generalise those gains to the speech pathologist and then you can do a really good assessment. Um, if Let me add, if we refer very early on to a speech pathologist, then we're both going to be working on some pretty intense strategies to help the child yeah. start talking to us. So we're kind of doing a double load uh, of, um, of work in that instance. And I think that you just touched briefly on this, but sometimes um, children who, who may get a diagnosis of selective mutism will present to us first as speech therapists for an assessment. And I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts of um, what we should be considering as part of assessment if this was to, to occur. Yeah, and I often get this question when I'm presenting to clinicians and, and speech pathologists. I really think it's quite divided because some speech pathologists are really interested in taking on the primary role of treating selective mutism, which is absolutely fine. And as you may know, uh, the main manual for selective mutism, the Selective Mutism Resource Manual, was written by two speech pathologists in the UK. No, I didn't know that, but that's a, that's a really good fact. <laughs> so Johnson and Wintgens. And Maggie Johnson um, if, if does you know, many webinars and seminars about selective mutism and takes on that primary treatment role. So I'm sure there's some speeches out there that would uh, love to take on that role uh, and do, which I think is fine. But it, but many speeches I know don't want to take on that primary role and they see their role as uh, treating the actual speech disorder like the expressive language disorder or the articulation yeah. disorder. Uh, so coming back to your question, um, what should they be considering? I guess to work out first um, what, what their role is going to be, how much of that role they want to take on, and then looking at uh, assessing the child's communication in a variety of settings at school, but even at school, how do they communicate with the teacher one-on-one, -on -one, with the teacher in the classroom, with their friends in the playground, their friends in the classroom, 
not so close friends in the classroom, small groups, whole class situations. So there's many situations uh, where you can be assessing how they communicate. And then there's all of the situations at home, if they've got visitors or out in public as well. Uh, I think speeches should try to get an understanding, a broader understanding of the child's anxiety and the family factors that might be uh, leading to their difficulties talking. Uh, looking at, at the history of has there been pressure from people to talk? Sometimes there's grandparents that have pressured yeah. manners. You need to say hi whenever you come to my house. Uh, and that may be a goal that's way too difficult uh, for the child and therefore plays a role in consolidating the mutism uh, or enabling. So children or parents might feel for their child, um, you know, feel very uh, empathic that they're anxious and step in and talk for them. So looking for all of those factors in the formulation and assessing the child's motivation. Um, how, how much does the child actually want to change this? What does the parent say about that? And how well can the child and the parent talk about anxiety and emotions? So children who can talk more openly to their own parents about their anxiety and emotions are actually going to make much greater gains than those children that really struggle and might walk away when the parent tries to talk about feelings. So it's a bit of a broad uh, question that you've asked in terms yeah, of, you know, what to consider. Uh, there's, you know, there's so many different components to assessment and it, and it really depends on that role that you're going to be taking. So, um, Elizabeth, can you describe some of the treatment approaches that might be implemented with a child diagnosed with selective mutism? Absolutely. So one of the main strategies that's used is called sliding in. And this is a strategy that is unique to selective mutism. I've never heard of it being used before with any other condition, but it does fall within the category of strategies called stimulus fading. So sliding in is basically where the child would start uh, in a space like the uh, therapy room or in the classroom, talking with the parents with no one else there. And you usually help that talking along through a highly structured game. So some typical games are things like guess who or go fish and the child would be playing with their parent. You'd be wanting them to use a fairly normal voice. It could be a little bit lower than uh, the voice that they use at home. And then the teacher or the clinician would start outside the room with the door closed and they, if the child's able to talk to their parent, they would then move inside the room uh, to a far corner and a variation that we use at our clinic is they put headphones on and they listen to music and you can even reassure the child by letting them listen to the music before you put the headphones on and the child then continues to play the game with their parents and then the next step might be taking one of the headphones off and then the other headphone off and then get down on the floor to their level but where your desk is or where you've been and then gradually moving forward at about half a meter closer at a time and then eventually joining the game. And while you're doing that process of sliding in, you're also starting to make comments about the game. Like, oh, it sounds like you're having so much fun, or mum won that round, I hope you win the next round. And so the child's learning that you're paying attention and you're hearing what's going on, but nothing bad's happening. You know, their worst fears aren't happening. You're not making comments at this stage about their voice. The world's not falling apart. So, as they tolerate that and keep on talking to their parents, then you can start to reflect their speech. 
So uh, you may be saying, oh, great asking mum if her person has glasses. That's really helping you find out who her person is. That's if they're playing Guess Who. And then eventually you're joining the game. And once you've joined the game and the child's still using their voice, you would then slide the parent away, but usually in a lot uh, fewer steps, so about three steps to get the parent out of the room with the door closed. And then the child's talking to you, the therapist, or the classroom teacher. And from there, you then build on more structured games and gradually work on more flexible speaking over time. So sliding in is one of the main strategies that I would use uh, with pretty much every child unless they can already talk a little bit to their classroom teacher. The other main category of strategies is graded exposure, which is what we use with pretty much all anxiety disorders. So most people are familiar with the idea of a stepladder. So if you have a spider phobia, you've got to face that fear, but you do it in very small steps. So we do that with kids with selective mutism. And to guide the graded exposure, I have a model called the five stages of communication. And we work up different stages from um, just being relaxed in an environment and joining in a game non-verbally all the way up to talking directly to someone. So we use that graded exposure strategy uh, not only at school, but parents would use it when they're working on communication with their child at the shops or at their extracurricular activities like soccer and piano lessons. And also we use that to generalise the child's talking from the teacher or the therapist to other people. So my receptionist is the next guinea pig that the child starts talking to, or at school it might be the next teacher and eventually all the children in the class. So they're the two main categories, but then we use lots of other strategies like anxiety management strategies such as relaxation or thought challenging, emotion coaching strategies because we find these kids don't have a very good understanding of emotions and anxiety. So lots of teaching the child about that, but in particular teaching the parents to talk regularly to their child about emotions. Uh, And then a very big part of our program is having an intensive school program. Uh, So getting the teacher to work with building the child's talking with them and then teaching the teacher strategies to then help generalise that to all classroom situations, small groups, um, eventually speeches to the class. I love I love how you describe both those approaches with the um, with working with children with selective mutism. Do you think that intervention is more effective in the environment where the child finds it most challenging to communicate? So, for example, if the child is mute in the school environment, should intervention occur in this setting? The school intervention is an absolute essential part of the program. So what we find is if you just do intervention in the clinic, the child will start talking to you. You could even generalise it to other people around the clinic, but you're very unlikely to see any shift in their communication at school. So they're still going to be mute with their teacher if that's how they're presenting. So the school intervention is a really valuable part of the intervention, but not the whole part. So intervention still needs to happen in the clinic and the parents still need to be working on strategies outside school as well. Um, So what time and resources are required to help the child be successful in their intervention? So I find because treatment takes such a long time, so I said before about one to two years, we find that, you know, the ideal of weekly sessions is just not um, sustainable for parents um, financially and even from a practical sense. So we find that clinic sessions about every two to three weeks is what we end up doing. 
And over time, that ends up being even more spaced out. Uh, but to keep up the intensity uh, at, with our program, we get the teacher and the parent and the child to meet at school for three 15-minute sessions every week. So that doesn't involve the clinician, so hence um, not a lot of costs for the family, but very regular practice in the school environment uh, to build up their communication. Uh, and then as part of our program, we provide two consultations to the classroom teacher each school term. So that's usually a long, like a 45-minute consultation. Uh, and then other time is the parents practising as regularly as they can in social situations. We generally find parents don't do as much as they should. I mean, parents lead busy lives, but also yeah. they it's anxiety-provoking for parents to be working on these strategies. So ideally, they should be working every day on a strategy, but in reality, it tends to be, you know, maybe once a week or twice a week. Yeah. And how do you balance giving the person the opportunity to talk without making them feel more anxious? Yeah, like all anxiety disorders, uh, kids and adults need to face their fears in order for those fears to reduce. That's that concept of graded exposure. So um, we have to make them more anxious and I guess therapists have to be comfortable with that idea that, yep, I've, I need to make this child anxious in order for their anxiety to reduce. Uh, but I guess using that stepladder approach, a graded approach, um, so as an example, my five-stage model, I'll go through the five stages. Stage one is what I call pre-communication, and that is just being able to do what you're supposed to do in the environment. It could be walking into my office, uh, being able to sit on the floor and play a game, uh, which some kids can't do, or at school being able to move from their desk to the mat um, or separate from their parent at the start of the day. So I would always focus on that stage first before working on later stages. Stage two is being able to talk to a talking buddy. That's someone they can already talk freely with, like a parent or a sibling or a friend, but in the situation where they feel anxious. So if I put them in my office with their parent and I walk out and close the door, can the child talk? So probably 80 to 90% of them can, but a small amount can't. And the same with the classroom. So that's in my model because uh, kids need to be able to do that in order to then progress with the sliding in strategy. And then stage three is where I put nonverbal communication, which is a really big stage, as you know. I think speechies probably have a better understanding of that stage than psychologists do. Uh, but working on nodding, shaking their head, holding up fingers, uh, waving, shrugging their shoulders, even I love that. writing answers, all of that is really important. And then stage four is like a transitioning strategy to speech. So there's a uh, couple of different types of stage four communication. One is, and I don't use this very often, but making sounds and combining those sounds to form words. So making an N sound for N, O sound for O, and then, hey, let's combine that. And, oh, that's almost the word no. Uh, I would only use that with rare, uh, in rare situations where we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of speech anxiety and less social anxiety. So I won't talk about that part much. But other stage four strategies are using their talking buddy to communicate their message to someone else. So at the shops, uh, they might go to the ice cream counter and the assistant says, "What would you like?" And the child looks toward their parents 
whispers the answer in their ear. They might even cup their hand around their mouth and the parent then relays what they've said to the assistant. Uh, and if they're doing that in that situation or even at school with a teacher using a friend as a talking buddy and the friend tells the teacher, you can shape that behaviour so that eventually the other person is hearing their voice and they can respond to them directly rather than the talking buddy repeating what they're saying. Uh, so that's a slower way than sliding in that whole shaping procedure to gradually get direct talking. Uh, and a third type of stage four communication is using recording devices uh, to record their voice and play it to the teacher or someone else. So they might record it at home and play it. If that's too hard for the child, you could mask their voice. So you could use some of the apps where they record it at home, but when they play it back, it might sound like they've sucked in helium or they sound like a robot or an alien. And that's easier for some kids. Uh, to mask their voice uh, or there's even those megaphones that they can talk into and their voice comes out sounding like a robot or an alien. So they're stage four strategies and then stage five strategies are direct talking to someone but as you can imagine that's a massive strategy. So initially uh, whispering a single word uh, not even looking at someone would be stage five but you can build their voice volume, build to sentences Rather than just answering questions, they can initiate questions and start to become more flexible in their talking. So they're the five stages uh, that uh, I help kids work through uh, when we're working on communication. And do you think that there is a role for um, the use of augmentative and alternative communication in the treatment plan of a child diagnosed with selective mutism? Yes, yeah, so that type of communication falls within my stage three and stage four. So sometimes it's stage three, uh, like let's say they were using a, a keychain of pictures to communicate their needs to the teacher. I would call that stage three nonverbal. Or if they were recording their voice at home and then they played it back on an app to the teacher, I'd call that stage four because they're using, they're actually communicating their real voice uh, using that device. So it's a really important stepping stone. Uh, sometimes people do ask that question of, is it a crux? It's not a crux. So long as if they're capable of higher stages of communication, you're working on those higher stages of communication. But particularly in the early stages of treatment, they're not capable of those higher stages of communication. And we need the child to get their needs met in the classroom. If they need to go to the toilet, if they don't yeah. have a worksheet, they missed out on the worksheet, a child just hurt them in the playground. Uh, if they can't verbally communicate that, they're not going to. So we need to teach them to be able to communicate those needs using those augmentative devices and then gradually uh, increase the difficulty until the stage three turns into stage four and then eventually direct talking. Is selective mutism something a speech pathologist can treat or does evidence suggest that a team approach or other professions are better placed to manage the disorder? Yeah, I think as I've, uh, we talked about earlier, I think speech pathologists can treat selective mutism well if they're really interested and they um, skill themselves up and they learn the strategies um, and as, as I've said, the Selective Mutism Resource Manual was uh, written by those two speech pathologists. But I think it's also really important to consider the broader context of the Selective Mutism, which is what psychologists are more trained in, obviously, with mental health uh, and a you know, really good understanding of anxiety. 
So uh, if the selective mutism itself per se is treated but not the general anxiety or the other family factors that are leading to the anxiety, then I think there's a good chance the child might develop another anxiety disorder uh, later on. They're going to be more vulnerable to depression uh, and other conditions like that because those family factors are still existing. So that, that question really depends on how much the speech pathologist feels that they can address those other factors um, so psychologists in their treatment will look at setting up those foundations to help children manage emotions better in general and to help the parents be able to help the child in an ongoing way in managing emotions. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, children with selective mutism have a really high comorbidity with other conditions. So looking broadly at those other conditions, you know, let's look at the depression or let's look at the social skills Let's treat the um, the wetting or the behavioural problems at bedtime. There's usually so many other things that I end up looking at with families uh, rather than just the selective mutism. Let me add, I think I have learned so much from speech pathologists over the years, um, particularly with that stage five direct talking, uh, being expanding direct talking, you know, from just sentences, becoming more flexible. I think you guys have much better ideas and much better training than we do with those sort of strategies. So I'm always keen to pick your brains and learn more about those sort of strategies. And do you think that um, speech pathologists might need some specialist training um, for working with people with selective mutism? Yeah, I'm not totally familiar with uh, your training as a speech pathologist, so I don't know what it does involve. But I guess the most important things that I would see, apart from really understanding selective mutism and maybe um, learning from seminars from people who work with selective mutism. I think in addition to that, just the mental health training with really understanding anxiety disorders, how anxiety disorders are treated, um, and maybe even um, looking at some basic family therapy training to understanding the family factors that lead to um, conditions such as selective mutism. And finally, um, Elizabeth, where could our listeners go to find out more about your work and your clinic? A great place to start is just my website, so selectivemutism.com.au, and there's lots of information about selective mutism, very detailed, frequently asked questions, and uh, I've got details of um, all of the webinars that I run throughout the year. There's also recordings of all of the webinars that people can purchase access to or DVDs of those uh, webinars as well. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise, Elizabeth. It has been such a wonderful chat. No problem. It's been a pleasure, Kristen, and I hope I've sparked even more interest for your members in this topic. Oh, you certainly have for me. Um, and as working part of Kim's, I, I think that this is a real area that um, speech pathologists can grow in, in their knowledge. So thank you. And thank you so much to everyone for listening. Please tune in again next week for another Speak Up conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.